Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just a quick note before this episode begins. The main reason I'm re-releasing this one is because it failed to appear on many of the platforms when it was first uploaded on the 6th of February. I'm not entirely sure why this happened, but if you've already heard this episode, you're not really going to be hearing anything new. Obviously, feel free to listen again if you want. This is really more for people who weren't able to listen to this episode. So, either way, I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode we shall be looking into The Awakening from 1980. As I'm sure will shock many of my regular listeners, the template for this episode is going to be the same as usual. First, we shall start with a little background information on the film. Then there will be a section on the historical accuracy. And finally, I shall review the film, saying what I like and dislike about it. Right. Let us not waste any more time. Twenty years ago, we made a major discovery as we uncovered the completely intact tomb of Queen Kara. Now, whenever we think about her, our obsession grows. Over the years, madness begins to seep in. We no longer want to simply see her in her coffin. We want to bring her back to life. We want to cause... The Awakening. Right, in this section, I'm just going to go over some of the background information on the film. We'll start with having a little look at the budget for the film. This film cost $5.3 million to make, which in today's money comes to almost $19 million. This makes it the most expensive mummy movie up until this point. Surprisingly, 
overtaking Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy from 1955. This budget is really noticeable, as the film was potentially the first ever mummy movie filmed in both Egypt and the UK, so it was filmed on location. Much like with The Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which came before it, this film was based on Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. However, unlike Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, this was not a Hammer Horror production and was instead produced by Warner Brothers. In fact, Warner Brothers clearly wanted this film to be a big success because they hired a very established actor in Charlton Heston who was well known for films such as Planet of the Apes, Ben-Hur, and even the 1950s epic The Ten Commandments, which was the first ever Egyptian-based film to be released in colour. In general, this was supposed to be Warner Brothers' answer to The Omen, which had come out about four years before this. Considering that The Omen had many, many terrible sequels, while this film had none, it's fair to say it didn't really succeed, especially considering that on its opening night it made less than three million dollars. And indeed, in its entire lifetime, this film has only made about eight million. Now I'm going to go over the historical accuracy of the film. So, to begin with, right at the very beginning of the film, Matthew Corbeck, who's um, the character that Charlton Heston plays, says that he has found a cartouche which has been erased and then another cartouche has been drawn over the top of it. So, for those who haven't listened to previous episodes where I've talked about this, a cartouche is basically a depiction of a ring of rope that has the pharaoh's name written in it. You normally find it amongst an inscription, for instance. There are, in fairness, quite a few examples throughout ancient Egypt where pharaohs have removed the cartouches of other pharaohs and placed their own names over the top of them. So, one example I always go with would be Akhenaten and Tutankhamun, because they both had this happen to them as later pharaohs kind of wanted to erase them from history. Another example of this would be the very powerful female pharaoh Hatshepsut from the 18th dynasty. Essentially, her son, Thutmose III, towards the end of his reign, started to erase a lot of her cartouches, and he also started to tear down a lot of her statues and things like that. We're not entirely sure why he did this. It may have been he was trying to erase her from history, but we just don't really know entirely. Essentially, for about 15 years, Thutmose III and Hatshepsut actually ruled Egypt together. And during that time, as far as we can tell, there didn't seem to be that much animosity between them. Although I have seen some sources claim that Thutmose III was only two years old when he came to the throne. Realistically, we can't know his exact age. However, considering he ruled for 53 years, he must have been very young when he came to the throne. And ultimately, that's why Hatshepsut ruled alongside him to begin with. The fact that she ruled for 15 years after that and did essentially become the sole pharaoh for a while, may be the reason that he erased her names. We just don't know. 
Anyway, I am quite clearly getting a bit sidetracked here, but if you are interested in women in ancient Egypt or female pharaohs, Hatshepsut is a really, really good pharaoh to look at. Okay, back to the film. Matthew Corbeck then says that he is getting the cartouche carbon dated as they speak. The cartouche looks like it's written on stone, and in reality you can't carbon date stone. For something to be carbon datable it has to be organic, so it has to have once been alive. A little later in the film we see Jane Turner, who's Matthew Corbeck's assistant, read hieroglyphs in the wrong direction. So, as I have explained in previous episodes, you can read hieroglyphs from left to right, right to left, or top to bottom, but you're always reading into the face of the animals. Jane is reading into the back of their heads. In fact, throughout the first half an hour of this film, she reads pretty much all of the hieroglyphs in really odd ways. When they actually get into the tomb of Queen Kara, she starts to read some hieroglyphs that are in a column. In fairness to her, she does start at the top, which is correct. Then for some reason, she jumps over the cartouche in the middle and starts to read from the bottom upwards. It is only right at the very end that she starts to read the cartouche. Though, in fairness to her, not only does she read it in the correct order, pointing at the correct signs, but the cartouche does actually say Kara. Basically, in cartouches, very often we have a thing called honorific transposition. What this means is, although the hieroglyph for a particular god may be said later in the name, it is written first because it is the most important sign. Jane takes this into account. She first points at the bottom hieroglyph, which is the hieroglyph car, which is kind of two arms that are held upright. And then she points at the hieroglyph for Ra, so the sun god which is directly above it. When they first discover the tomb, Matthew Corbeck decides to smash down the door with a massive sledgehammer and then just lets it kind of crash to the ground. This is pretty shoddy archaeology to be honest with you as, unsurprisingly, it's best not to damage the tomb. I guess on the upside, at least he didn't use dynamite like they have in quite a few films before this. One of the first things we see in the tomb is a depiction of Kara with her face chiselled out. The chiselling out of faces in this way usually came from a much later time in Egypt, when Christianity first started moving to the country. It is quite ironic that the early Christians only removed the depictions of humans from the walls. All of the other images, such as the animals or the humans with animal heads, were mostly left alone. It is actually these latter images that are the depictions of the gods. And so, needless to say, they kind of failed in this, to be honest. I apologise if you are Christian and you feel I am making fun here. That is most certainly not my goal and I strongly believe in respecting everyone's beliefs. However, I also believe in betraying history as it actually happened. When it comes to the tomb of Queen Kara, it is clearly inspired by the tombs found in the Valley of the Kings, which is actually where the film implies her tomb is located. On the surface, this seems really accurate. It's also worth noting that she's said to have lived in 3800 BCE. The first tomb from the Valley of the Kings 
comes from about 1500 BCE, and so it is unlikely she would have actually been buried here. When Matthew Corbeck starts to remove a lot of the treasure from the tomb, a member of the Egyptian government gets really annoyed at him, as he does not have the permission to do so. In such circumstances, this would in fact be a legitimate concern of the Egyptian government, as people have been banned from the country for much less. Largely due to past looting of the country, rules around things like excavational sites and artefacts are incredibly strict in Egypt. Most of what I've spoken about so far comes from the opening of the film, which is set 20 years in the past. The rest of this section will be for the rest of the film, which is set in the modern day, or, well, at least the 1980s anyway. The first thing we see here is the display case holding the coffin of Queen Kara cracking and dust falling from the mummy. This happens as the eclipse is moving over the sun and we see the body of Queen Kara physically darkening as it does so. Although very dramatic, you wouldn't tend to store human remains in direct sunlight as UV light can cause the bones to crack and things like that. Usually, museums have their windows boarded up for this reason, and if they don't, the objects that are in direct sunlight tend to be made of stone and things like that, as they're less affected by sunlight. This is largely why most museums tend to be quite dimly lit. A little later in the film, Jane is talking to Matthew Corbeck's daughter, Margaret. She is explaining that Queen Cara was forced to marry her own father, and that, amongst the royal family, incest was actually quite common. This is accurate, as, for the most part, the royal family wanted to keep their bloodline pure. And so, very often they would marry their sister or half-sister, and on rare occasions, the pharaoh would even marry their own daughter. For the most part, when it came to the general public in ancient Egypt, the marriage between siblings was not something that was commonly done. However, during the Roman times in Egypt, sibling marriages did become more common and it's likely that this was done as a way of holding on to certain properties. Right, let's move away from this very unpleasant subject. Matthew Corbeck then states that the pharaohs started to build their tombs as soon as they became pharaoh and often even before then. Yeah, this is correct. Unsurprisingly, Tombs take a long time to build, and they take a lot of planning, so they had to be started well in advance. The final thing I'd like to talk about here comes when they return to Queen Kara's tomb. One of the people they are with, named Yosef, ends up getting killed by a trap that basically springs out of the wall and stabs him through the heart. Such traps are quite a common trope in films such as this, and... They're one that I actually quite enjoy, but they are not historically accurate. For areas such as the Valley of the Kings, where Queen Kara was said to be buried, the whole point was that the tomb was hidden in quite a remote location. This location was also guarded, and on top of that, even the people who were building the tomb lived in a location known as Dar el Medina, which is basically a village which is separated from the rest of the population. Ironically, very often, it was these builders who were the actual tomb robbers, as they knew the layout of the tomb because they'd made it. On top of building the tombs in quite remote locations, 
Very often, the actual tunnels of the tombs were completely filled with rubble to stop people getting in, and the entrance was actually concealed as well. There was also sometimes a fake wall in the tomb that was made out of plaster. We will now move on to the final part of this episode, which is the review of the film. Basically, I'm just going to go over the parts that I enjoyed in the film, the bits that I liked for the wrong reason, so the bits I found funny essentially, and the parts that I didn't like at all, and just generally go over whether I actually liked the film or not. I shall start with the parts that I quite liked. Firstly, although I don't like to put everything down to budgets, it is very noticeable that this film looked a hundred times better than any Mummy movie before it. The fact that it was shot on location really did add to this film, and just generally there was a very eerie kind of like atmosphere throughout it. Also, when it comes to the first half an hour of the film, the story was really well told, and some of the choices were actually quite inventive. For instance, as Matthew Corbeck starts knocking down the door to Kara's tomb, his pregnant wife is going into labour, and every time he hits the door, she has a contraction. This is a really effective way of showing how there's a link between her pregnancy and the tomb of Queen Kara. Further, when she actually has the baby, it sadly comes out stillborn. However, as Matthew Corbeck pushes the lid off of the coffin, suddenly the baby comes to life, and it is immediately apparent that the baby is the reincarnation of Queen Kara. This whole part was done very well, as the film uses the concept of showing not telling really effectively. In general, the first half an hour of this film, which is set 20 years in the past, is very enjoyable and comes off as quite ominous and mysterious, but you always understand what's going on. For the most part, the actual relationships in the film also tend to make sense. So for instance, at the beginning of the film, set 20 years in the past, Anna, Matthew Corbeck's wife, is very suspicious of Matthew Corbeck and Jane, his assistant. Matthew Corbeck makes out that she's being a bit paranoid, but he understands how she's feeling. However, in the film, in the present day, Matthew Corbeck is actually married to Jane, and he and Anna have divorced. Therefore, her fears were kind of actually justified, and in this, Matthew Corbeck is kind of the one in the wrong. Yet later in the film, Anna actively tries to dissuade Margaret from going to see her father, and even goes as far as to say she will break her heart if she does. Anna's motivations here are quite understandable, but this doesn't stop the fact she's being very manipulative and is definitely in the wrong. Basically, no character in this film is entirely good or bad. All characters have understandable motivations. All the characters also have their strengths and weaknesses, and this is a really good thing. The final part of this film that I quite enjoyed were the deaths throughout, which came across as quite brutal, but in a very 1980s slasher fashion. For instance, one man accidentally gets hung by a wire due to a sarcophagus lid falling down the side of a cliff. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Another person falls out of a window and then watches as a shard of glass falls towards their neck, all with complete, very humorous 
unrealistic 1980s special effects. I shall now go over the parts of the film that I liked for the wrong reason. So, the parts that I liked because essentially they were funny. Firstly, throughout the film, the Egyptologists seem to really want heatstroke because they very often dig outside with nothing but a pair of trousers on. Very often, they do not wear hats and there is never any water in sight throughout the whole film. As someone who has had heatstroke in Egypt, it really is not fun and it's something you do want to be taking seriously. Finally, I find it really funny that when Margaret eventually turns into Queen Kara, the only thing that aesthetically changes is that she's got some eyeliner on. Because apparently, nothing says ancient Egyptian queen like some cheap eyeliner. Now I shall move on to the parts of the film I did not like. After the first half an hour of the film, which I admittedly did really enjoy, the film becomes incredibly slow and plodding. And to be honest, by the hour mark, I was very bored. Basically, throughout the middle part of the film, Matthew Corbeck ascends into a kind of madness. And this is a really cool idea, but it never seems to evolve. Basically, when he's not focused on Queen Kara, he's pretty normal. And then when he is focused on Queen Kara, he goes a bit mad. And that's essentially the whole of it, it feels like. I don't know, maybe I'm missing something, but outside of the end of the film, there isn't really any escalation to this. Although Corbeck's ascent into madness did escalate towards the end of the film, to be honest, regardless, I just didn't think the ending was particularly good. He tries to bring Kara back to life in order to save his daughter. Meanwhile, Paul, who's kind of Margaret's boyfriend of sorts, arrives at their house and sees that the urns that are used to bring Kara back to life are missing. To me, it kind of felt like Paul was going to come and save the day somehow, and yet he just never showed up. And then the film just kind of ends. I guess it's trying to be mysterious, and again, there's a really good chance that maybe I'm missing something here, I'm not sure. But I just found the whole thing very anticlimactic, and... To be honest, even without that, by this point, I was just so bored that I just didn't really care about the characters anymore. The reviews for this film were pretty poor. And to be honest with you, I actually understand why, because the downsides to this film were very blatant. Although I really liked the beginning of this film, it just felt as time went on, it just got worse and worse. However, I will give this film some kudos because, as said, I did enjoy that first half an hour and I do feel that there was quite a bit of effort put into making this. Overall, I would give this film a 5 out of 10. I didn't particularly like it, but it wasn't the worst film I've ever seen. Thank you very much for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing? Next Monday, we shall be looking at Dawn of the Mummy from 1981. Please join me then. Thank you.